Welcome to Matinee with Matt, the ultimate rendezvous for all things entertainment. My name is Matt Kreeth, a film critic, and I'm joined weekly by my husband, Michael. Not so much a film critic. So grab your popcorn as we dive headfirst into the world of movies, TV shows, books, and beyond. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Matinee with Matt podcast. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing good. Anxiously awaiting for all of the new movies to come out this year and just so much more content to devour. <laughs> to, you... to devour and to uh, to conquer on this podcast. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. This is a this is a fun episode specifically for me. <laughs> um and film nerds, film buffs like myself. This one's for you guys. Uh, this uh, this is a, a a podcast episode all about the power of film, and uh, I get to uh, interview a couple of people to talk about the power of film. And uh, very excited to 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 release this today. This is a this is a fun one. What was I was unable to see it and participate. What was it about? So the Power Film is currently a six-episode docu series that's on Turner Classic Movies on TCM, and it is. Um, I got to interview um, the filmmakers of the TCM docu series, Laura Gabbard and Doug Prey. They are the filmmaking duo behind the Power Film. It originally was a book by Howard Suber, who had a very lengthy fifty-year career as a professor at UCLA Film School, and he is the subject of the Power of Film documentary, where he kind of goes into a deep dive on on movies, uh, film history, and uh, what what makes movies so special that we keep going back to the movie theaters and, and streaming to, to check these movies out. It's a lot about uh, classic American film and kind of the the formulas that uh, are behind a lot of the movies that we know and love and quote and and remember from even you know decades ago from almost a hundred years ago. It's uh, quite a uh, quite an amazing docu series. It's really well done. Um, the the documentary is hosted by Dave Cogger. He's a staple of uh, Turner Classic Movies, and uh, this is a fun conversation um, about just uh, movies in general. And uh, I hope everybody takes a lot out of it. Um, they were really nice to, to sit with us and, and, and talk to me about um, the making of The Power of Film and uh, what makes Howard such an interesting subject, uh, because he is really the <laughs> the main subject of this docu-series. Um, it's been well-received on TCM. A lot of people have been talking about um, this new documentary, and and we got a chance to uh, to sit down and, and talk to these uh, fine folks. So I, I was really excited to do this. Cool. Well, I hope that people are able to check it out and enjoy it, and they can take a listen to your interview here. All right. Well. Welcome, Laura and Doug, to the Matinee with Matt podcast. It's so nice to to, uh, to talk to you both today. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so today we're talking about The Power of Film, which uh, did premiere on Turner Classic Movies um, earlier this month. And 
It is releasing every Thursday. There are six episodes in total. How did this series come to be? Well, uh, both Laura and I are former students of Howard Suber at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, graduate school. And we actually were both TAs of his, so we got to know him pretty well. It's safe to say he was our mentor and one of the more influential professors we'd ever had. He also taught a really popular class um, in film structure that everybody who went to UCLA Film School was kind of like, you know, you probably should take this class because he makes you think about films in a very different way. And he kind of unpacks them in ways that you'd never really thought about before. And anyway, but so the genesis was just that we always liked Howard's teaching and it influenced our careers. Eventually, one day we were meeting with Howard. And he was he had talked about he really wanted to do some kind of a series, almost like a, a Bill Moyers type, Joseph Campbell type series that you might see on PBS, something like that. And he had written a book called The Power of Film. And it's kind of a, it just sort of made sense to do something like this. Yeah. And we also just said um this is going to be a hard thing to like bring to platforms and studios and streamers. And we just decided to jump in and do it independently, which is also uh, pretty unusual in, in our business. And so I, I had a chance to screen uh, the first two episodes of The Power of Film. And it struck me there, it, it seems to be there are two subjects in, in, in this series. One is Howard himself, who um, had a 50-year career at UCLA teaching film. And the other subject is movies, just in general. Uh, we all love movies, and I'm a film critic, so I know that I love movies, and I know why I love movies. But what what struck me watching the first two episodes is just the, the various different ways that people kind of respond to film in general, the different themes, the, the why we actually leave our homes and buy a ticket and buy some popcorn and a drink and, and actually sit down in a movie theater and and watch a watch a movie for two hours of screen time. What, why do you think we all do this? I know why I do it, but why do you think the general audience does it? I mean, I think you know Howard really does actually explore that 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 one of the main one of his main teachings or one of the main teachings that really stayed with me and I think influenced both Doug and me is this idea of the psychology of the audience that we project our feelings and our kind of our our range of experiences kind of on to movies and on to characters. And we we like to kind of work through our own personal sort of journeys and struggles and hopes and fears through by watching movies. You know, it's reflected right there for us on screen. Um, and the most successful ones do that so well that we want to watch them over and over again. Yeah, he, he talks about movies and there's really no division between movies and just storytelling as it's gone on for thousands of years, whether it's Shakespeare or going back to the days of of the Greeks and the myths and all of these things. And he, he sort of, he has this way that I think is, is really powerful of just making it very universal and very human that we don't, we're not just going to a movie to see like, oh, this one actor or something. I mean, of course we may, but... There's something much deeper going on. And he puts you in touch with that somehow. He's like, no, we're going to see how other people work out things we can't in our real lives. That's one thing. And sometimes we're going to, you know, it's it's like, well, in episode two, just as an example, he talks about this idea of trapped, like almost every movie, sort of like a an individual who's trapped between fate and destiny. And we go to the movie 
I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not spoiling any plot point, but it very clearly breaks down this idea of like, why do we go to movies? We want to see how people get out of these traps because yeah. we're all trapped. In other words, we can relate and we go, for, it's like this deeply therapeutic thing that's been going on for eons of us wanting to hear great stories. Even if you're sitting around the campfire and we're all cave people, it's like, why did we tell stories? And why are the best stories the ones that make us feel the most? And so I just, I love that kind of thinking because it's very, it's very outside the box. It's not like, you know, oh, this happened and that happened. And it's just like, it's not who starred in it. It's none of that. It's just, this is what's really going on. It seems like Howard is just like lecturing in a very good way in this series Kind of like a masterclass episode would be if you if you purchase like a masterclass from a famous person uh howard should be that famous person but at this point you have this series that kind of uh, shows his analysis of film and it's really interesting and fun and and so how hard was it to to research all of the film clips and and edit them together with howard's narrative and and all of his points that it, that he points out throughout the series I mean, I'm going to let Doug answer that because Doug is our supervising editor and did a, a lot of the heavy lifting of the edit. But it, it I will say very briefly, it, it was not easy, actually. <laughs> and I think that, that one of the biggest sort of challenges was what to leave out because, you know, his his lectures in real life are three hours long. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he will digress and, and talk about a specific sort of point for 30 minutes and Many of those things are brilliant and super entertaining, but we had to really sort of stick to what really fit into sort of the, the main topics that we sort of together with Howard and, and our team, Joey Sierra and our other editors sort of thought were the strongest sort of most the best ones that to really like pair with clips, I think, um, and that really distilled his teachings into something that was, you know, good for a television audience. And Doug, you should talk a little bit more just about the process of editing because it was intense. It was intense, but it was elemental. In other words, we had these amazing movie clips from anything he would talk about. Of course, there's you know some incredible films that that he may have talked about that didn't make the final edit, but it has nothing to do with whether those films are great or not. Just that's just you know editing for you. Um, but it was like he's taking fifty years of teaching. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lectures and trying to boil it into six days. We shot for six days on a soundstage where we just, we use what Errol Morris kind of pioneered, which is the Interatron, where you're looking straight into the lens, <laughs> just so that it would be very direct, very direct address to the viewer, kind of as if you're sitting in his class, just looking at your professor and kind of go, okay. And it also made it a little more intimate and a little more personal in some way. And then you have these clips, and then with the other element that is actually very subtle, but is playing a, what I consider a really big role, is we have a composer named Garen Chang, who scored the entire thing. And so, of course, these movies have their own scores and things, and some of the scenes are acapella or without score, and some aren't. But but basically, the whole thing has these kind of movements, and they you know there's a pacing to the overall collection of films and Howard's thoughts. So it kind of goes in, it's just like making a scene of a movie. It's like, you know, there's like a, for five minutes, he's going to get into this one idea pretty heavily and it's all scored and built up and it has a beginning and a middle and an end. And it's just like editing a film, but you're seeing maybe 
a half dozen clips from different movies. But his point is the main point. And it, it just was, it definitely took a lot of heavy lifting. And um, we had two uh, two other editors, Philip Owens and uh, Avo Kamborian, who, who we all worked a couple different years on it and kind of handed off different edits. And it really was amazing. And, you know, the whole time we're trying to please our professor. He's still our teacher. He's still our mentor. So we're like, we would do a scene and Howard would be like, no. <laughs> we're like oh my god back to the drawing board like we got a c minus on that one you know <laughs> anyway but he was no he was actually very he was wonderful throughout the process but but it was still all this pressure to like get his points right because sometimes we would edit and they weren't right and we'd have to fix it <laughs> i mean i i don't want to speak for howard but i think you you got it right because the editing does flow very well in this show um oh, and it it's quite amazing. I mean, he'll be talking about something like The Godfather or Goodfellas or, um, you know, even Home Alone uh, in the second episode and and talking about themes. And, and it flows very well with a lot of the scenes that he's talking about. And kind of speaking on that, um, the series does explore a lot of themes, uh, mostly family, power, destiny, uh, feeling trapped, as you mentioned, Doug, uh, relationships. Um, I know future episodes will we'll talk about heroes and villains and the meaning of love. What do you think Howard's points on these themes mean to, to general movie-going audiences? I, I guess I hope that it will just sort of make people think a little bit differently about what they're responding to and why. I mean, the, you know, and again, that's sort of, that's not what you really, we don't want people to be outside of themselves as they're watching it. But I do think it'll make people sort of appreciate why we do go back to certain movies and watch them over and over again, or why certain movies last. I'm not sure if that's answering your question exactly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know that Howard brings up a lot in the in the two episodes that I was able to watch um, the the idea of memory and and recalling a lot of um, films that have touched you and and really meant a lot to you. Um, that's my understanding of why maybe movie going audiences continue to to go to movies um, because they're looking for something like that. Um, maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's an escape. But. Um, that's kind of what I've I've taken from it so far. And I like the I like the message of universality. I mean, the the lessons Howard taught Laura and I, they absolutely apply to documentary filmmaking, which we're both documentary filmmakers. They absolutely apply to short films. They absolutely apply to TV series. You know, both the entire season and an episode and a. You know, they apply to commercials, which I've done some of, you know, like just short form 30 seconds. There's, there are these principles of storytelling that he's illuminating that I think are very powerful. And somebody the other day asked like, well, what do you hope, you know, what the, what's the point? What's What do you hope to come out of that? I was, we were kind of laughing about this idea of like, well, I hope people make better films. <laughs> because maybe we can, if you can relate personally to a film, I don't care what era it's in or what genre or what format, then it's just better storytelling. And why do we like better storytelling? Because it moves us. It makes us smarter about living our lives. It makes us want to take action in situations where maybe we wouldn't have the guts to take action. Maybe it's, you know, it could go on and on and make things up, but that's why we like good stories. And I, the, the only other thing I'll say about the universality of it all is... There's always a tendency. Every generation is like, oh, screw the past. Screw all those old things. Like, we're, we're, we're breaking the rules. We're making every generation. Believe me, I felt the exact same in my <laughs> 20s. And now that I'm old, I can finally be that old guy who says that. But, like, this is so universal. 
it does like it goes back for eons and and it's all the same it's sort of like you know as different as it is we're still relating to the same things and if you can't relate to a character in 2024 in some movie is because it's not a it's not good storytelling period i don't care how hip it is or how abstract or it doesn't matter there seem there seems to be a formula that's worked in movies for over a hundred years, and that's yes. kind of what uh, what uh, I think you're talking about, Doug. But it's uh, it's very interesting to me because in the very first episode, Howard is very careful in talking about uh, that a lot of these uh, episodes in this series have to do with American films, and not only just American films, but um, the ones that we remember the most, the ones that are the most celebrated, tend to be ones that for many decades were featuring a uh, a main character that is usually straight white male and that's kind of who we have seen in uh, films time and time again um how have modern movies do you think changed these themes if at all um going forward i think they have a lot i mean i think i mean if there's a long way to go for sure but there's just been a quite wonderful proliferation of of much more diverse films and diverse storytelling in the last five to six years. And I like that Howard acknowledges that. It's quite essential that he does, because otherwise then we too are stuck and like, no, we're just honoring this one way of life. And I think he's he's really it's it was important for him to get beyond that and to say, look, we understand this. We know that the reason these are all about white male characters is all the screenwriters were white male people, you know, who wrote these for decades. And, and, and we, you know, in other words, he's just saying, I get that. Let's talk about the inner workings, though, of storytelling amongst all humans. Laura, did you want to say something about that? Um, yeah, no, I'm just, I agree. And I think that it, it was important for, it was something that Howard was very concerned about in in making the series. He really wanted to make sure that he that people understand that we, you know, you can still study the past and understand why these movies work. You can hold two thoughts in your brain, right? It's like let's look at why these movies work and why they're powerful and why they're were popular at the t- at their, the time they came out and remain popular or memorable at least. Um, and also know that it's not a reflection of society, a true reflection of society. You know, at the time, there was a reason, there is a there was a power dynamic in place, and it's still in place to a large degree, uh, and that's changing, but you know, slowly. I think. I hope it's getting better, and that's uh, and that's my hope for twenty twenty four is that we get to see more diverse stories over and over again. But I will say, some of my favorite movies are they tend to be underdog stories, and you know, the little guy triumphing over. You know, a perceived giant, um, often a often a villain. I know that an upcoming episode has to do a lot with heroes and villains. What can you kind of um, say about what Howard has to say about heroes and villains for for those that haven't seen the episode yet? I mean, I think one of the things I love most about what when Howard talks about heroes and villains is he sort of you know subverts people's sort of expectations or their sort of kind of their their first thoughts about what heroes or villains are. And he really explores that some of our favorite characters are actually villains. They they can be the most interesting character in a movie. Um, you know, the Joker, for example, in Dark Knight. Um, um, and that heroes too have this sort of have shadow sides. And it's why we also relate to heroes. And it, we relate to both heroes and villains because that's us. We all have shadow sides too, you know. And that's what makes you want to keep watching. 
you know, it's it's you know, there's this idea of like the reluctant hero. Like, why do people not want to be heroes? I, that's one of my favorite things that Howard talks about when he talks about heroes. It's like the hero is usually sort of sacrificed in some way by society. And that's why people are not signing up to be heroes all the time. And that's why they're sort of, ex you know, extraordinary in these in these films. Um, and usually they're doing it on behalf of society at large. And it just makes you it makes you really like look at these sort of traditional ideas of heroes and villains quite differently. It's also he I like I love how Howard just debunks myths. We, we get these ideas like, oh, the hero has always got to be this like completely, you know, perfect person. And the villain is, you know, it's like one's white, one's black. I don't mean racially. I mean, just like it's like. You know, it's a static thing. And he just totally flips that on its head. I said, no, not at all. The greatest films of all time, it's almost the opposite. It's like the hero is very troubled or very reluctant or very or doesn't get anything out of being a hero. They don't get payback. They don't get money. They don't they they often leave the community they've saved at the end of the, at the end of a lot of great movies. So the fact that he even lines up those movies and says, look at this one and this one and this one, and you go, oh, my God, I never thought about that before. The hero got nothing in return for all of his sacrifice. And the villain, you know, maybe the villain's dead, but it's just like, it's just really interesting. I just love how he debunks the Smith. And this kind of goes back to the earlier question about politics, is that it transcends politics. And so anybody who's telling stories today in any genre and on any story level with any characters of any kind, these principles really really are even more powerful for stuff like that it's like wait a minute you know like you just said you like stories about underdogs well most most great movies really they're always the underdog there's very few movies about some like just hero who was a hero at the start and they're a hero throughout and then they win and everybody loves them that's called a boring movie really boring. <laughs> you know some tv shows are like that back in the 50s but it's like it's just different. It's it's really interesting. Kind of, he kind of makes you think about all storytelling can embrace these concepts. I uh, I mentioned earlier about uh, memory seeming to be kind of an underlying concept in this series. Uh, we we tend to remember a scene and and how it's made us feel. We recite a lot of movie quotes. I know I do all the time in my everyday language. I tend to recite movie quotes as if it's something I came up with myself. Um, why do you why do you think that we remember films more than maybe other art forms like, you know, a, a painting that you see in a, in a you know, very famous museum like the Louvre? Um, I've been there before. I have seen the Mona Lisa. I don't know that it really strikes me as something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. Why do you think movies and, and storytelling in general does that to us? I engage all the senses. No. Because it's taking a number of arts you have the art of acting which is just its whole thing of like a, a human being moving you by a performance and then you have sound design i'm really into sound and the secret power of sound in a movie music but beyond music the sound design and just the way you feel so much is driven by sound and then of course you know you have writing and you have directing and you have art direction and you have wardrobe and you have all these different arts all coming at you in a in a lived experience. Yeah, and if the movie is really successful, it's creating a world unto itself, and you're entering that world, and you're transported to it through all of those different uh, disciplines. Well, on that note, I want to say thank you to both of you for for joining me today. I think that's a good note to end on. 
Um, thank you, Doug and Laura. I uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to watch The Power of Film on TCM while it's still uh, going on through February. Thank you both. Thanks, Thank you. Matt. Appreciate it. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed my conversation with uh, Laura Gabbard and Doug uh, Prey about the power of film. And now it is time for our Go On segment. This is Go On, the segment where one of us educates the other about interesting things in the culture, unearthing hidden gems and little known trivia from the world of entertainment. And it is mine today. So, Michael, in keeping with a lot of what I talked to Laura and Doug about, about the uh, about American films and, and a lot of those that are memorable and powerful, um, you know, we, we think a lot about kind of the, the, the top 100, uh, you know, f- uh, famous movies of all time that everybody quotes and everybody knows and, and some that, um, you know, have had just like a huge cultural impact and, and mark on American society. Some of these are, you know, The Godfather, Gone with the Wind, uh, The Wizard of Oz, The Graduate, Schindler's Lois, Singing in the Rain, Citizen Kane, and so on and so on. So I have a fun little go on uh, that kind of relates to some of that. So now that we are kind of in the throes of award season and the Oscar nominations are coming out, um, Anthony Hopkins, who uh, is very famous for The Silence of the Lambs, one of the you know top films of all time in, in American cinema, um, did you know that he has one of the shortest screen times for a Best Actor Oscar win? Go on. So Anthony Hopkins is actually only in The Silence of the Lambs for like about 15 minutes of screen time. For the whole movie? For the whole movie, yet we like, when we think of Anthony Hopkins, we think of Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter, like that's his iconic character, but he's really only in it for like 15, 16 minutes of the entire movie. Really, the most of the movie is Jodie Foster and, and everybody else in the cast, but because his performance is so memorable, uh, you know, we just think that he's like in the entire movie and he's a lead. He ended up winning the Oscar for best actor, a lead performance, but he's really only in it for like a handful of minutes. It's, it's quite remarkable when you kind of time it out. Um, and there's some other actors that kind of follow suit Beatrice Strait, who won an Oscar for best supporting actress for network. She's only in that movie for five whole minutes, and she ended up winning an Academy Award for that performance. That is, what's her filming schedule like? She shows up for a day? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, she's in, I think, two scenes. One is a very big scene, but she's only in the whole movie for five minutes. Um, so when we talk about the Oscars coming up soon um, and you know the performances that we remember um, just remember that Anthony Hopkins ended up winning an Oscar for just, you know, probably a, a couple of weeks of, of filming on The Silence of the Lambs. So. Did anybody else from The Silence of the Lambs win an Oscar? Oh, yeah. It was a huge, huge um, Academy Awards uh, uh, winning film. Won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins. Jodie Foster won Best Actress, and it also won Best Adapted Screenplay. So it, it hit all top five okay. of the categories for the Oscars, which has not been done a lot. Um, I think everything... Um, no, I don't think everything, everyone all at once even did that. It's uh, uh, um, um, the, the top five or those uh, those categories. So Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought 
I recently had seen that. I mean, a couple of years ago. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you think about that movie and you think about him with his uh, that faceplate thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, anymore, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, I guess if you give it your all in those. You never know. Uh, <laughs> you never know what's good, what the payout's going to be. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Be good for me to see if uh, anybody, maybe Oppenheimer, can do that this I know, year. right? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Florence Pugh, we're looking at you. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us today. And thank you again to Laura Gabbert and Doug Prey for our interview on The Power of Film. This has been the latest episode of Matinee with Matt. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe for more, and follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Matinee with Matt to stay updated on all things film, television, and pop culture. That's a wrap. <laughs>